Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. to sing together. It's good to be together. It's also good to pray together. Let's pray um, by reciting what will be familiar to most of you, uh, pretty much all of you. The Lord's Prayer will be on the screen. We'll recite it using debts, not trespasses, for those of you that maybe grew up praying a different translation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Some of you know the for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory part. You may be surprised to know that's not actually in the original translation. That's a later edition, a very good edition, nevertheless. The words in bold there, or underlined, your kingdom come, whoop, go back, and your will be done. Do you ever stop to think about what it is we, when we're saying when we pray that? Do you ever pause and think, what, is, what do I mean when I pray your kingdom come and your will be done? What, what is that exactly? The familiar words to us, how many of you grew up praying that as a kid? The Our Father, Hail Mary, yep. Um, it's, it's wonderful. It's a beautiful prayer. Jesus gave it to his, it's really the disciples' prayer. It wasn't his prayer. He's a prayer he gave to his disciples when they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. They heard him praying, and they want to pray like he prayed. He said, this is how you ought to pray. But when we pray, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done, what are we saying? Put it this way. What will it be like when his kingdom comes? We've referred to the kingdom in this series following the king on the Gospel of Mark as the blessings of the rule and reign of Jesus in our lives. Someday he'll, he'll return and the kingdom will be fully realized and all the blessings in all their perfection and glory will be here. But between this day and that day, we live in this sort of world of two kingdoms or multi, many kingdoms, right? He's, his kingdom is not the, and his will are not the only kingdom and will that are operative. There are other wills and other kingdoms that are not so great in our world and we pray for his kingdom to come, we're talking about the blessings of the rule and reign of Jesus in my life and in the world. But what does that look like? Last week, if you were here, we looked at the, anybody remember, in your Mark journals, in the Gospel of Mark series, we looked at what, the parable of the sower. The sower went out to sow seed. We looked at what that means. The kingdom, Jesus says, doesn't come by coercion, by military force, by elections, by politics or policy. It comes like a little seed taken in through a human heart. It grows imperceptible for a while. But given time, in good soil, it produces a harvest that you, can, you can't even imagine. So what, what does it produce? What does it look like? Mark then, after the parable of the sower, gives us a taste of what the kingdom will look like someday and in this day in four miraculous stories. We're going to be covering Mark, the end of chapter 4 through Mark 5.43. So if you've got dinner plans, you might want to change that reservation. We're going to be here a while. No, I'm only kidding. 
But somebody said to me a couple of Saturdays ago, I feel like we get the longer version on Saturday night, Pastor Jeff. I wasn't sure if that was like a backhanded compliment or if that was any criticism. Either way, there's a lot to cover tonight, uh, and we'll, we'll, we won't be able to go into detail in all of it, but it, he gives four accounts that highlight what the kingdom's like. They, they're stories of the kingdom in action. Um, in verses Mark chapter 4, verse 35, through chapter 5, verse 43, in case you have your Mark journals or Bibles you want to follow along. And in brief... What will the kingdom be like when it comes? No disasters. That's chapter 4, verses 35 to 40, 41. No demons, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. No powers of darkness. No disease. That's chapter 5, verses 21 to 34. And no death. Chapter 5, 35 to 43. These four stories give us some glimpses of what it will be like when the kingdom fully comes. So no disasters, no Hurricane Katrina, uh, no floods, no fires, no earthquakes, no tornadoes. No natural disasters that rob people of their homes and of their lives and of their resources. No demonic powers. And we're going to talk about this when we get to the healing of the man who had many demons. And some of you might be tripped up by that and thinking, oh, that's hocus pocus stuff. But the Bible is very clear. Whatever you think about demons and demon possession, there are dark forces in the world. There are spiritual forces of evil that are real. C.S. Lewis says there's two equal and opposite errors when it comes to believing in demons and spiritual uh, forces. One is to believe in them too much with an obsessive uh, fixation on them. The other is to not believe in them at all. Which do you think we're more prone to? Which error is more prone for us today? I think to disbelieve entirely. I think that's just ancient superstition. And it's a mistake. So, no violence, no oppression, no exploitation, no temptation, and no disease, no sickness. Imagine a world without cancer, where women waiting to deliver their first baby aren't stuck in the hospital until the baby comes, desperately praying, where no COVID-19, no mental illness, no depression, no strokes, no heart attacks, no unnamed illnesses that doctors can't figure out, and then no death. No fear, no loss of loved ones, no miscarriages, no grief, no deathbed goodbyes. It's, it's hard to imagine, really. And I think the reason it's hard to imagine is because it's imaginary to us. It's, we do live in a world where all those things exist, where there are dark powers, where there is oppression, there is violence, there is disease, there is death. What else would you expect, though, really, if you think about it? Living in a fallen world that rejects the king, it should not surprise us that we see the opposite of the kingdom around us. The promise of Jesus is that he's with us in this life full of storms and darkness and disease and death, and that he's going to bring us into the completeness of his kingdom one day. This is, okay, that's the overview of the four stories. Now we'll, we'll, we'll zoom in a bit and look at them a bit more closely at each of these stories, these miracles that show us what the kingdom is like. So for a little historical and geographical context, I want you to see this map of Galilee. So you know where this takes place, and there's a reason for showing you the map, not just because maps are cool, which they are. But if you look at the Sea of Galilee, which is about, about it's, it's, not, it's not a sea. If you've ever been, who's been to Israel? Anybody been? Anybody? Nobody? Okay. Well, if you ever get a chance to go, you'll be surprised. It's, it's a lake. It's not, the, it's not a sea. It's about five times the size of Lake Geneva. So it's big, but it's not, it's not, it's not Great Lakes size. Um, but it is big, and there are storms. So anyway... Jesus was born in Nazareth. You see that off to the far left, about the middle of the screen on the left there. And his headquarters for most of his ministry was in Capernaum. That's Peter's hometown. Uh, that's in the north part of the Sea of Galilee. But those Bethsaida, Capernaum, um, Chorazin, 
that whole region in the north um, west port part of the Sea of Galilee was where most of the ministry of Jesus took place. When you read the gospel accounts, until the end when he went to Jerusalem and confronted uh, the powers, most of his life and ministry was in that area, in that region. So um, he's going to travel in our stories from one side, Capernaum, across to where it says Gergesa, and then back again. And we'll explain why that's important as we go. Um, all the things you read about, the feeding of the 5,000, the Sermon on the Mount, they all happened in that region. These stories took place on opposite shores of the Sea of Galilee. And this was intentional by Jesus. So uh, let's look at Mark chapter 4, verses 40 through 41. Mark 4, verses 40 through 41. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The disciples, as you know the story, were afraid because there was a massive storm on the sea, the lake that they grew up fishing. So much so that they're terrified they're going to drown. Jesus is sleeping on a cushion in the boat. They wake him up. And say, don't you care about us that we're going to drown? The boat's coming apart. Jesus stands up and says, peace, be still. And it's like glass. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, John has a vision of the sea when Jesus returns, and it's like glass, smooth. No storms when he returns. And with a word, it's smooth as glass, calm. And the disciples are more afraid after, the, after that than they were in the storm, which is fascinating. They're terrified of the waves, They wake up Jesus, he does what they want him to do, and they freak out even more. They're even more terrified. And the question they ask sets up the rest of the stories. They say, who is this? Who is this in the boat with us? That even the wind and the waves obey him. That he has power over the sea. Who is this? The theme of fear runs through all four of these stories. They're afraid of the waves, and they're terrified of Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you afraid? Are you still, you have little faith? There is a fear Jesus brings, and we're going to see that. There's also a fear that Jesus relieves. And my experience is most of us want to jump right to the second. We want Jesus to relieve our fear. Bring peace. Give me comfort. Give me joy. But you can't have the fear Jesus relieves in your heart unless you understand the fear that he brings. When you read through the gospel accounts of the scriptures, people that encounter God are afraid. They're terrified. They're falling down on their face as though one dead. They tremble. They say, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. They say, woe is me. Fear is the natural response and the appropriate response of a human being in the presence of Almighty God. You ever been really afraid? I mean, really, really afraid. Not like, not like surprise. I don't mean like, like, oh, you scared me. I mean, like, heart-gripping, paralyzing fear. Thinking this might be, I, I might be, this might, I might be in trouble here. Years ago, my wife and I went to Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, with a group of pastors and our wives for a, a, a like a retreat. Um, and there's a place you've, you've seen that they call it Lands End. Those arch formations, those rock outcroppings at the end of uh, of Cabo there. And we went. Um, snorkeling and it was wonderful fishing and there's another on the other side of one of the rock formations they call it well the one side we were on called lover's beach the other side they called divorce beach which i thought was just a funny name 
But I went over there, and I found out why. Nobody was over there. It was a beautiful beach. It was on the Pacific side, not on, not on, the, on, the, um, on the bay side. And I, the waves were coming in. I thought, I want to do some body surfing. It's so gorgeous here. Nobody's there. Why is nobody there? It should have been a clue. You know, no locals or bodies are in there. So I, I, I swam out, and Aaron's on the beach, kind of not paying attention. And I caught a couple small waves. This was fun, you know, going out a little further. Waves were getting bigger. I thought, I can, I'm a big guy. I can handle it. And I, at the time, I probably weighed about 70 pounds more than I do now. And I caught this wave. Paddle, paddle, paddle. Caught this wave, and it rode. And I was just cresting that thing. It was magical. And then it just hammered me. Just boom. Slammed me down, tumbled me around like a washing machine. I didn't know which way it was up. I had sand in my eyelids and in my nose and in my, up in my gums. I hit the bottom. I thought I was like really shallow. I, I tried to push up off the ground. I, I didn't know which, where I couldn't get to the top. I had water in my, in my, in my you know, I had swallowed some water. And I was freaking out. Like, I was terrified. I was thinking, I, I might be in real trouble here. And then when I came up, I was gasping for air. And I said, I got to swim hard. I did about 15, 20 strokes. I looked up and I was no closer to shore. Now I'm really tired. And I'm like, I could, I might, I'm, now I know why they call it divorce beach. <laughs> I mean, I'm in real trouble. Aaron's looking at me with big white eyes. I caught another wave and it, and it brought me all the way in and just slammed me onto the beach. And I rolled over and she said, are you okay? I said, I think so. She said, can I laugh now? <laughs> <laughs> Power of the sea is a terrifying thing if you've ever been a part of it, if you ever felt that. It's terrifying. It's overwhelming. Well, what? What about the God who made the sea? If you come into the presence of the Almighty God, who has power over the wind and the waves, we ought to tremble. We ought to be on our faces. We ought to say, who is this? The question the disciples ask, then, uh, is, is the question that Mark is dealing with in the next three stories that are essentially answering that question, who then is this? Let's look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea. So keep that in mind. They were on the side in Capernaum, where Jesus' headquarters were. Jesus intentionally takes them out to sea where there's a storm. You think he didn't know there was going to be a storm? He did that to teach them something about who he is. Jesus is always teaching his disciples and us about who he is. So they're out to sea, and he's teaching them in the boat who he is. They continue on to the other side, to the place of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Jesus intentionally crosses the sea, the lake, after the storm, Again, why, we should ask, where is he going? Apparently, for this guy. This terrifying, desperate, wretched individual. And also to teach his disciples about who he is. And us, if we're paying attention. But that, we, don't rush past that. Jesus crosses the stormy sea for this man. Who, who, his condition is a metaphor for like, just the, it's just the worst, po- the, um, the, the whole story is full of uncleanness. Evil spirits, tombs, bones, blood, all these things make someone unclean to the Jewish mind. Not only that, but that side of the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Gerasenes, is what's known as the area of the Decapolis, named for ten cities, ten pagan Greco-Roman Hellenistic cities. They weren't faithful Jewish cities, they were cities of people that were unclean, they were, not, they were Gentiles. 
So Jesus crosses the lake through a storm to go to an unclean place to meet with an unclean man among unclean people, at least to the Jewish mind. This guy's uncontrollable. Would have been a terrible sight. Can you, can you imagine? I mean, maybe you've had the experience I've had many times. You've been in urban centers. We used to go down to the south side of Chicago and people that have struggled with mental illness or addiction and live on the streets. It makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? I don't want to, but if I'm honest, it makes me a little uncomfortable. I recoil a little bit. I try to get over that, pray, and move forward and share the love of Christ with them, but sometimes you meet some individuals and it's a little scary. They're not right. Well, this is like that magnified times 100. He's, he's tormented. Desperation. And if you're, again, if you're thinking about the, the demon part, we're going to get to that, but um, St. Clement, uh, one of the early church fathers, says part of the demonic function in the world, in the Bible in the world, is to distort and destroy the image of God and humanity. To make us less than what God intended us. That's certainly true of this guy. Almost unrecognizable. Think about it. Naked, living among the tombs. What if this guy shows up on your street? Nobody can control him. You call the police, 911. Sorry. Oh, that guy? We, uh, we, we, we can't. He breaks the handcuffs. He, he hurts our officers. Hope he goes away. You're on your own. There's nothing they could do. Jesus and his disciples are barely on shore, and this man rushes up to him, shrieking, walking, uh, wailing, and falling down before him. And he says, what do you want with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? So the demons recognize who Jesus is, which is interesting. When you go through the Gospels, the disciples are often confused about who Jesus is, but the, the evil spirits know. They plead with Jesus not to torment them. And Jesus casts them out. And completely restores this man. We don't have time to get into it, but some of you know the story. He actually ca- he asked them, what is your name? They say, we are legion, for there were many. Legion and a Roman legion had 6,000 soldiers, over 300 horse, plus all the um, carts and, and, and wagons that supported it. So it's a, you know, it's a massive operation. When he says, we are legion, it's meant to give us a picture of an overwhelming force had possessed this man, was, was oppressing him. You know, powers of darkness that are hard to comprehend. We're devastating his life. When he runs to Jesus, the text says that he cries out in a loud voice, like shrieks, and then says, what do you want with us, Jesus? It's easy to think that he's shrieking those words, but probably what it actually means is there's this dual thing going on, right? In his humanity, he's, shri- he's shrieking, help me, like almost like a wailing, a moan of I need help, and then the voice of those that are pressing him speak, what do you want with us, Jesus? It's really a desperate condition. And Jesus casts out the demons into a herd of pigs. Do you remember this story? And they run off the cliff and over the hill. And I've always wondered, the poor pig farmer <laughs> lost, <laughs> lost all his pigs. Like, that's an economic disaster. There's lots of disagreement about what this actually means. Pigs were unclean animals, so they may be unclean spirits to unclean animals. The sea was a symbol of the abyss, a symbolic representative of the pit, which is made for the devil and his angels. So there's some symbolism going on there, but we don't have time to get into the weeds on that. The point is, Jesus liberates the man. Heals the man, completely restores him. Let's look at verses 14 through 15. Because what happens next is really pretty surprising. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country, and people came to see what was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion 
sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. And they were what? Afraid. The fear that Jesus brings once again. How shocking. This guy who nobody wanted anything to do with, who stayed in the tombs, everybody's afraid of, who avoided at all costs, who terrorized the town, they come out and they see him dressed, sitting in his right mind. No crazed look in his eyes anymore. No shrieking, no foaming at the mouth, no tearing at his own skin, breaking of chains. Just sit calmly. It would be, can you imagine? I remember years ago, we went to the south side of Chicago on a missions trip, and there's a guy named Odell who was in the, the, the drop-in center, which he was homeless on the streets, addiction, and just a guy that I wanted our kids to avoid. Uh, one year we went back, and I, we met him. I saw him again, and he, had, I, he looked familiar to me. I couldn't place it. I'm like, who is that guy? And Pastor Tony said, that's Odell. Over a decade of homelessness and addiction, he'd gotten sober. He looked so different. No more beard. He was washed and clean. He looked, I could see that uh, there's a similarity, but it was so different, almost unrecognizable. Well, magnify that times a thousand, right? That's the situation here. What's the response? Thank you, Jesus, for taking away our greatest fear, the terror of our town. Thank you. Please, please stay with us. Please enjoy. We want to have you in our homes and feed you and stay here with us and teach us about the kingdom and heal more people. Is that what they do? No. They're terrified, and they actually beg Jesus to leave. There is a fear that Jesus brings. Let's look at verses 17 through 20 of Mark chapter 5. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, Jesus, did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's a great passage. If you like to underline or highlight, that, that, that verse is worth underlining and highlighting. Go home. Go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Verse 19. They begged Jesus to go away. Why? They're more afraid. Think about this for a minute. Remember the disciples? More afraid of the man in the boat than the waves on the outside? Here the townspeople are more afraid of the one who has authority over these spirits than the guy who was possessed by them. What Jesus does for this man is a picture of what he does for all of us who trust in him. I think it's easy to read the story and think, well, that, that's, I don't even know if I believe in that, but that's kind of a crazy story. That's not really my life. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not demon possessed. Thank you very much. I, I mean, I have my problems, but I'm not like that guy. But if you think about what happened there, it's a symbolic picture of what Jesus does for every one of us. He comes to us in our desperate situation. The message of the gospel is Jesus comes to you first. He initiates. Crossing the sea, the raging sea. Finding you in your desperate condition. He confronts the darkness in us. Sinfulness. Selfishness. Pride. Anger depression, fear. He confronts all of it. He heals and restores us. Forgiveness. He dresses us, clothes us in his righteousness. Over and over again, the scriptures say that we are clothed in his righteousness. 
There's these images in the parables Jesus told of him putting the robe. Remember when the, the, the prodigal son comes home after being away with the pigs and blowing all his money and, and he's, a, he's an outcast and a rebel. He comes home and the father kisses him, puts a ring on his finger and a robe on him. The robe is a symbol of you're my son again. And that's symbolic of what Jesus does. He dresses us in his righteousness. We're told in Ephesians that we take off our old self. We put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In Revelation 19, the saints around the throne are given white robes. This man is dressed, clothed, and he brings us into our right minds. We gain an eternal perspective. We see the world differently when we come to Jesus. And then then last, he sends him out. Go tell your friends how good God is, how merciful he's been to you. Isn't that good? That's the gospel. This wretched, crazy, desperate man is a metaphor for what Jesus does for all of us. He comes to you in your desperate condition. He confronts the darkness in your soul. He heals you. He clothes you in his righteousness. He restores your mind so you think accurately according to his word, and he sends you out to tell your friends how good he is. The people that region experienced the fear Jesus brings, but they sent him away. They didn't stick around long enough to see the fear that Jesus relieves. But the disciples do. And the next two stories are about the fear that Jesus relieves. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. Again, we're just, we're just picking and choosing kind of our way through these, 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 these long, this long chapter. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so you're following, he went from Capernaum to the Gerasenes, healed the man, the demoniac. Think about that for just a minute. Why did he go across the lake? For that one guy? Yeah. For his disciples? Yeah. But what does he tell that one man healed and restored to do? Go home. Tell your friends. And what did he do? He did. In the Decapolis, those ten Gentile pagan cities, that man is an evangelist. (laughs) He's the first Gentile evangelist in the New Testament. Okay, I'll do what you say, Jesus. You, you, You did what no one else could do. You set me free. I'll tell everyone. My whole life, I'll tell everyone. That's what he does. Uh, we'll meet him someday. I, I, I think about that sometimes. We don't hear any more about him. Live the rest of his life in obscurity, telling a story about the man who healed him in ten cities, the region of ten cities that Jews thought were unclean. Anyway, they get in the boat, they sail back across the lake to the other side. And as they get to the other side, here's what happens. Verse 22, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now th- think about that. We've, we've looked at the stories of Jesus in the synagogue with the rulers of the synagogue. Are they usually falling at Jesus' feet and worshiping him? No. They're judging him, condemning him, trying to trap him. This is a shocking thing for this guy to do. It's going to cost him some socio-political capital to fall down at Jesus' feet. And implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Desperate fathers with dying daughters don't care about protocols or social convention. They'll do anything to save their little girl. Every dad in here knows that. You do anything to help your kid. Jesus comes back, and before he can even hardly get on shore, this man runs up to him, begs him. 
We find out later she's 12 years old. Think about that. This ruler of the synagogue has a 12-year-old middle schooler at home, and she's dying, and nobody can help her. Probably prayed his heart out. He's heard about this rabbi who his friends want to destroy, but he's heard that he's done miracles. He thinks maybe he could heal my daughter, but it's going to cost me. I might lose my position. Who cares? This is my little girl. Jesus goes with him on the way. And on the way, some of you know the story, but on the way, something amazing happens. The, first of all, there's a crowd. Jesus, everywhere, the news about Jesus is building. There's a buzz about him. So everywhere he goes, there are crowds now. And they're waiting for him on the shore. They probably are coming with the synagogue ruler. They see this happening. Jesus says, I'm going to go with you to heal your daughter. And they start, off they go, and a massive crowd is following him. And more people begin to gather. So much so that it's shoulder to shoulder. It's, they're, they're pressing in on each other. I remember when the Cubs won the World Series. Seems like a lifetime ago. But when that happened, I went down with my son for the parade. Took a day off school because, you know, it, because it's, it's the Cubs. And went down to Chicago and the parade, people were all over the place. And it was, it was wall-to-wall people. It was a lot of fun, but it was, it was, you know, they were not social distancing in those days. We were, like, crammed in together on the streets. That's the image I have in my mind when I think about this. This crowd pressing in around Jesus as he's making his way to Jairus' house. Let's read what happens. Uh, chapter 5, verse 25 through 28. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And it had suffered much under many physicians. That's interesting. Had they caused more suffering for her? Or had she just suffered and they couldn't fix her? Either way. And had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Sounds like a very contemporary story. Poor person, suffering, doctors can't figure it out, insurance companies overcharging her, and she's out of money. I mean, I'm contemporizing, but you get the idea. She got worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now, stop there for a minute. What is she talking about here? We don't have time to get into this too much. But Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, there's this messianic prophecy about the, the, the Messiah. When he comes, there will be healing in his wings. The Hebrew word for wings is the word kanaf. And if you've ever seen Orthodox Jews, the prayer shawls that they wear, you know, they put over their head, they have the tassels on the end. Those tassels are called tzitzit, but the corners the tassels are attached to are called the kanaf the corners or the wings. And so when you see uh, rabbis, they pull their, their prayer shawl over them. You've seen, probably seen with the Western Wall in, in Israel uh, praying like this. They pull their wings around them. So the, the legend or that grew out of this prophecy is that the Messiah will have healing in his kanaf, in his wings. She thinks the corner of his prayer shawl. If I just touch it, if he's the one, I might be healed. So she... You know, first of all, she's a bleeding woman. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be in that crowd. She's taking a big risk because she can make someone else unclean if she touches them because of her issue of blood. But she makes her way through the crowd, trying to hide her face, trying to keep the hood over her, just to, get, just to reach out and get a little touch, which she does. She's desperate. She's a social and moral outsider, totally insignificant on the social scale, Let's look at verses 30 through 34 and see what happens next. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? 
He looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, there it is again, fear and trembling, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There's so much going on here. The crowd's pressing around. Everybody's touching Jesus. And he stops, like, in the middle of it. He goes, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what's wrong with you? Everyone's touching you. We're touching all of us. We can't get away from them. No, someone touched me. And, he, and there's only two people in that whole mass of the crowd who know what he's talking about. Jesus and the woman. And she, the last thing she wants is to be noticed. She wants to, she's been healed. She wants to slink away and praise God on her own and go away. Right? But Jesus won't let it happen, will he? It's so amazing. He stops. Now, you, just for a minute, what do you think Jairus is thinking right now? Remember him? Why, my daughter is dying. So she's bleeding. I got a dying daughter. Like, can you f- fix her later? I mean, really, I mean, when, I'm a dad of a daughter. I'd be thinking that. I mean, you're, you're Jesus. Can't you, can't you do, do that like with the snap of the fingers? We have a dying daughter to get to. But Jesus stops. And he calls this woman. He won't let her get away with the anonymity. He calls her out of the crowd. I think, I think this is instructive for us. You, you can't follow Jesus anonymously as part of the crowd or without coming out of the crowd to face him. So Jesus is going to... She's experienced the power of, his, of, t- of touch. He wants her to meet him face to face. Why does he do that, do you think? For her sake. The shore, not only is she physically healed, but she's accepted. He calls her daughter. So like he, who touched me? They're all like, what? And she's like hiding, you know? But then she realizes what she's at. He, she knows he's talking about me. So she, she, she comes forward. And he says, your faith is healed. You go in peace. She experienced the fear that Jesus brings and the fear that Jesus relieves. Remember the hymn, Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears, what? Relieved. We need both. The, fear that teaches, the grace that teaches us to fear and the grace that relieves our fears. We need both. Verse 33, she's fear and trembling. In verse 34, her fear is relieved. At this dramatic moment, like this very moment, right? So the crowd's parted. There's Jesus and the woman. The disciples are looking on in wonder and amazement. And Jairus is stressing out, like desperate for his daughter. And here's what happens next. And it's really tragic. Verses 35 and 36. While he, Jesus, was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Mark is amazing. Just a few words. There's so much he packs into these sentences. At this moment of the woman's liberation and restoration and acceptance, servants from Jairus' house come and tell him she didn't make it. Too late. Don't bother the rabbi anymore. What's the point? Your daughter's gone. It's hard... It's hard to even think about what that would feel like if you're Jairus. Anger, anguish, crushed. What does Jesus say to him? Doesn't say don't grieve. Doesn't say I'm going to raise her up. 
What does he say? Don't be afraid. Just believe. Those are good words for us, I think, when we're full of anguish or desperation. In his book, The Alphabet of Grace, Frederick Buechner says that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's fear. And I think that's really helpful. We think of faith as like certainty. It's not. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Thomas is a man of great faith, but he had doubts. We call him Doubting Thomas. Jesus, when he confronts him in his doubts, he doesn't say, you know, that you're, you're shame, shameful, shame on you for doubting. You're out now for questioning me. He says, he confronts him at the point of his doubts. Touch me here. Put your hand on my side. Touch my, the nail marks. And, you know, now stop doubting and believe. I think the opposite of faith is not doubt, but fear. The most commonly given command in all the Bibles, and you all know this, is some form of don't be afraid. Do not fear. I can imagine, Jairus, my daughter is dead because you delayed Jesus. Why did you wait? My daughter's dead. I asked you. You knew the situation. Jesus says, don't fear. Only believe. I, I don't have a lot. I mean, God's sense of timing is never ours. His grace, in my experience as a pastor in my own personal life, almost never operates on our schedule. And so just, just for a minute, I think maybe it would be wrong for me to skip over this to the resolution. I want to just speak to, to those of you who have lost somebody. Maybe even if you lost a child or a grandchild. It's hard to lose anybody, but losing someone at the end of life who's lived a good life, that's one thing. Losing a child is it's, it's hard to fathom. I think Jesus says to us, to you, there is pain. There is death. There is even delay. But there is also a resurrection. There's also a resurrection. Delay is not the final word for those that belong to Jesus. And Jairus is about to find that out. Let's read verses 39 through 42. And when they had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. By the way, these, are, these, are a group, these people that are wailing outside of Jairus' house, these are a combination of his family and what we call, what we call professional mourners. Meaning they would be from the town and they're not hired necessarily, but they would come and tear their clothes and weep and wail outside of his home as a, as a symbol of the, the grief and calamity that had befallen this family. To like announce to everyone uh, the tragedy that had happened. And they, they, were, they knew what a dead body looked like. We're removed from death. We're, we're anesthetized and sanitized in our culture. We don't see death up close except for like in the movies. But in, this is the first century of people that they, they knew what death looked like. They weren't wrong about the fact that she died. So Jesus says she's sleeping. They're like, they laugh. What are you talking about? We know a dead body when we see one. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside. I like that. Okay, you, you, you mockers, you stay out here. <laughs> and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in with the, where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. 
And immediately the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. You think? It's so tender. It's so beautiful. Jesus, he brings just the mom and dad and a few closest friends and followers into the room where the dead girl is lying, grabs her by the hand and says, little girl, get up. This is, this, is the, this is like the crescendo of his miracles so far in the gospel story. This is a precursor of the resurrection, of course. But like, this, is the big, this has never happened before. Raising from the dead. Lazarus comes later. Like, this is shocking. Beyond a lame man walking or blind men seeing. Even beyond calming the wind and the waves. We're talking about death. Remember the question the disciples asked? Who then is this? Who is this? I'll tell you who it is. He's the king who is the authority over the wind and the waves and the storms and disasters of this world. He's the king who has power over even the evil spirits of oppression and darkness that want to destroy us and, and take away the image of God in us. He's the king who has authority over disease and sickness. And he's the king who has authority even over death. You see how that question they ask in the boat, Mark is answering with these amazing stories? There may be a delay in your life right now. Like Jairus. You're in that, why, Jesus? What did you wait for? Why Why didn't you? The delay we experience in this life, they're not final. Jesus is. So let's, ask, let's finish with this. What do we learn about King Jesus? Many things. I'll just list four. And if you'd like to take notes, you can jot these down in your journals. First, there's no place he won't go to reach someone. He'll cross the, the raging sea. He'll go to the place no one else will go. The far side of the, of the lake in the tombs where nobody, where nobody went but the deranged man. There's no place he won't go to reach someone. To reach you. Two, there's no dark power he can't drive out. No depression, no anxiety, no fear. There's nothing, no darkness that he can't deal with. Three, there's no brokenness he can't heal and restore. Spiritual, emotional, mental, physical. And four, there's no desperate condition he cannot deliver us from, even death itself. We don't always see that on our timeline in this life, but that's the hope. That's what it means to follow the king, to believe that this is the one. I'm going to read to you something Tim Keller wrote in his book, Jesus the King on the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is facing death, the most implacable, inexorable enemy of the human race, And such is his power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her right up through it. Honey, get up. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. Why would we want to hurry someone this powerful and this loving who treats us this tenderly? Why would we be impatient with someone like this? Jesus holds us by the hand and brings us through the greatest darkness. We're going to close the service by taking communion. Hopefully you have received the, the cup as you came in. If not, just put your hand up or one of our ushers will come and make sure you have that.
Anybody need it? Over here on the far side. A couple, yeah. Let's bow in prayer and prepare our hearts. King Jesus, we, we've only scratched the surface of who you are in this, these texts, and we're grateful for your word, for its power to reveal. We're grateful that, like the disciples, you take us on a journey to teach us who you are. Because we, too, ask the question, who is this that we're saying we follow? And if we're honest, we sometimes doubt, we lose sight, we question we're easily distracted. We're fearful. We thank you, Lord, that your grace does cause fear in our hearts, cause us to tremble before a holy God. But we praise you that your grace relieves that fear when we recognize who you are and what you have done at the cross and the empty tomb. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts now, we confess to you our sin, our brokenness, our darkness, our uncleanness, and we once again receive the grace that only you can give, which heals, restores, and brings us back to our right minds. Amen. Just peel off that top layer. Jesus took bread and the night of his betrayal gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, it's given for you. Eat this in his memory. And after they'd eaten, Jesus poured out a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and know that he has washed you clean. Amen.